You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 53. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your guide on a voyage into realms of the fantastic. Every week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. This is also the place where I keep you up to date on my life and my writing. More on that later in the show. For now, I have a quick editorial note before we get to the story. Last week, I was answering a listener's question, and I made reference to a Metamore City short story, Missing Pieces. I said it had aired on this podcast a few months ago. Well, I was wrong. The story was released to the Patreon listeners a few months ago as one of the monthly bonus stories, but I never got around to releasing it on this podcast. That story is included in the second Metamore City story collection, Divine Intervention, which is on sale now in ebook form, but it has yet to be released to a wider audience on audio. Well, as it turns out, this is an excellent time to correct that. Next week I'll be in Baltimore at Balticon 50 so I won't have time to release a regular episode of the show anyway. That makes it an ideal time to go ahead and release Missing Pieces on the podcast. So, this week you get an installment of Things Unseen. In episode 54, you get Missing Pieces, the all-new short story that most of you have never heard before, and in episode 55, I'll have a new interview show. This time I'm interviewing J. Daniel Sawyer about his new business book for writers. It was a fun and informative conversation, and if you've ever thought of becoming a professional author, you owe it to yourself to check it out. We'll return to Things Unseen in episode 56. For now, though, let's get to this week's story. This week I'm bringing you the second half of chapter 14 in my Metamorph City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to this show, you'll want to go back and start listening at episode 24 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Catane has arranged a meeting between Misty Holloway and Julia Mathias, two of the survivors of an accident at the Tilvari Rift, and Jana Starson, the field commander of the Lothanasi Order. The Lightbringers have learned that Misty and Julia are possessed by magical symbionts native to the Rift, which became trapped inside them during a mana surge. Janus wants to know more about how exactly this happened, and to open a dialogue with these creatures to see if they can be trusted. If the meeting goes well, Janus has agreed to help the symbionts return to their home in the Rift, which is likely the only way to keep them from killing their unwitting hosts. Kate put into place a number of safeguards to try to keep the location of the meeting secure. But before leaving work for the day, Kate received a call from Morgan Drowling, who performed the autopsies on two other people who were killed by the Rift's power. Morgan confessed that she had screwed up and allowed the autopsy records to be stolen by a runner, a freelance spy, who was probably working for the Vampire Crime Syndicate. Since the Vampire Prince has been interested in the Rift for a while now, it's only a matter of time before he sends someone after the other Rift survivors. Little do Kate and Morgan realize, however, that the vampires are already moving. An observer has been sent to watch Misty Halloway, in the hope that she will lead the vamps directly to the last missing rift survivor, Misty's longtime companion, Sefi Hinlasos. 
Things Unseen, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 14, Continued. The parking garage, Kate had chosen, was everything the theater-going public could have asked for. Out of the way, dimly lit, mostly abandoned, and with the unsettling mixture of wide-open and claustrophobic that resulted from condensing vast amounts of flat concrete into a minimal amount of space. Julia's heels click-clacked and echoed around them as they walked from David's skimmer to the chosen meeting spot on the fourth level. Misty's taloned feet, resembling a pair of boots under her disguise charm, thudded along beside Julia in a bass counterpoint to her rhythm. The combined echoes rebounded again and again off the hard walls, adding to Kate's sense of unease. Janus waited patiently by a large black skimmer with tinted windows. His black business suit and tie stood in striking contrast to his white blonde hair and pale skin. Kate thought he looked like a chauffeur, No, an undertaker. He wasn't wearing a lemisil, but Kate could feel the sword somewhere close by. Ladies, detectives, Janus nodded to them all as they approached. Good evening. Agent Stassen. Julia took the lead, stepping past Kate and the others to bow deeply before Janus. Thank you for making time for us. It's an honor to finally meet you in person. Lady Julia? Janus bowed briefly to her in return. I understand you're in some trouble. How can I help? That's a good question, Misty said. She stepped forward to stand beside Julia and a little behind her. Here's a better one. How do you intend to help? Lady Halloway, Janus said, bowing a little more deeply in recognition of her rank as a house scion. That depends on what we're dealing with here. The Lothanasi have been charged with promoting peace and security in the relations between humans and other sentient beings. I'm here tonight to listen, to seek understanding, and to help, if I can. Misty put her hands on her hips. Those are pretty words, Agent Starson. Peace and security. Very nice. I wonder, which of those were you looking after when you attacked my brother John last year? Attacked her brother? Oh, shit. Kate looked back and forth between Janus and Misty. The hedonist was glaring daggers at him, but Janus returned her gaze without heat and without flinching. Security, milady. I thought your brother had enthralled a noblewoman and was attempting to infiltrate the imperial leadership. The situation was more complex than I thought. He bowed his head briefly. I acted rashly because I didn't have enough information. I'm trying to avoid repeating my mistake. For a moment, Misty seemed at a loss for words. I... She let out a breath of air in something that was not quite a laugh, then tried again. (laughs) Sorry, I've never heard a Lightbringer admit he was wrong before. I can admit when I've made a mistake, Janus said. He raised his eyebrows, the words... Can you? Hanging silently in the air between them. Julia cleared her throat. We've made a mistake as well, Agent Stassen. Detective Katane said you'd be willing to help us correct it. Potentially, yes, 
but I need to understand the situation first. Detective Katane tells me that you picked up symbionts of some kind during your exposure to the rift. Now you need help getting them home? Julia hesitated, a series of different emotions flickering across her face. Hope, fear, suspicion, sadness. She looked over at Misty. The other woman visibly clenched her jaw, looked down, and finally nodded once. There was a shift in the air. The heat aura around Julia grew stronger, forcing Kate to take a step backward. Neither Janus nor Misty seemed bothered by the change in temperature, perhaps because neither of them were entirely human. Yes, Lightbringer, Julia said. Her voice had changed, becoming high and soft and almost painfully fragile. We need to go home. Can you take us home? Janus looked at her, and suddenly Kate saw compassion fill his eyes. Who are you? he asked. His tone had become unexpectedly tender. I am called Imani, said the creature with Julia's voice. Please, sir, I want to go home. Why did you leave home, Imani? It was the first time David had spoken, and Kate jumped as his voice came from right beside her. She hadn't noticed him getting so close. Didn't mean to, Imani said. Julia looked down and bit her lip a curiously childlike expression. Because Imani is a child, Kate realized, or a juvenile or a hatchling or whatever these things call their young. I was curious, Imani said. Their voices were strange. I could hear them, but they weren't in the great chorus. So I went to see. She pointed at her head. I like this one the best, because she's like me. Like you how? Kate asked, overwhelmed by her own curiosity. She doesn't fit in, Imani said, sadly. Her family says they love her, but they think she's strange. She doesn't belong. She never will. Julia blushed, and Kate wondered whether that was her embarrassment or Imani's. Probably both. What is this great chorus? Janus asked. The great chorus is all the voices of our people, Imani said. We live together. We sing together. We think together. We feel together. A group mind, David said, glancing at Kate. Some sort of permanent psychic gestalt. Apparently not totally permanent, Kate said. How many of you left the rift, Imani? We were five, Amani said. The white lady called us, called into the great chorus. Lots of us came to listen, but five of us stayed. Then the flash came, and they fell over, and their minds went dark, and we got stuck. The white lady, asked David. She means Sefi, Misty said. She did the ritual that contacted them. Kate frowned at her. You didn't say anything about a ritual before. What sort of ritual was this? Janus asked. He wasn't looking any happier than Kate was. It was Zeke's idea, Misty said sourly. He wanted to recreate the communication spell that Lypath One was using before they disappeared. Janus stared at the two women. And you all agreed to this? Why? For how? Misty's voice softened. 
Can you imagine what it's been like for him, growing up without a mother, knowing that she vanished into thin air, never knowing why? It was killing him. We thought we could help. She shrugged. We all had our own reasons for going, but Hal's was the best. Interesting, David said. Did he find what he was looking for? Julia bit her lip. Misty narrowed her eyes at him. I guess you'd have to ask Hal that, she said. David lowered his head in respect. If we return you to the rift, Janus said, we'll need to speak to the great chorus. We'll have to make an agreement with your people to make sure nothing like this happens again. I think that would be all right, Imani said. She eyed Misty for confirmation. You can come and talk, Lightbringer, said Misty. Now her voice had changed as well. It was stronger and surer than Imani's, the voice of an adult who was used to authority. We will listen, but don't even think about bringing any weapons near the rift. We won't allow it. I understand your concerns, Janus said. The transport we'll use to take you home is equipped with weapons, but I can make sure they are not armed when we enter your airspace. If I intended to do you harm, you would know it, wouldn't you? I would, Misty agreed. Very well, Lightbringer. When will we go? I need twenty-four hours to have the transport brought here and prepare for the flight to Arambi. Come to Lothanasi headquarters tomorrow night, and we'll take you back to the Great Chorus. Julia's face broke into a sudden, childlike smile. All right, she said. Agreed, Misty said. I... Someone's coming. Kate turned and listened. Sure enough, the sound and lights of another skimmer were coming up from below them. Okay, everybody look casual, she said. We're just a bunch of folks having a chat after a night out. Nothing to see here. Janus opened the back of his skimmer, took off his suit jacket and lay it inside, neatly covering a lemasil in its scabbard. He leaned back in the doorframe and faced the others, attempting to look nonchalant while putting his hand within easy reach of the sword. It was about as convincing as an internal affairs cop trying to work undercover, but hopefully the folks in the skimmer wouldn't be looking too closely. David seemed to have melted into the shadows, which was just as well. His elven features were sure to draw stares. The skimmer came around the turn, long and black and glinting with chrome. Something changed in Julia's face, and her eyes filled with a frustration that was unmistakably her own. Shit, she groaned. Not now. The skimmer pulled up right in front of them and Lord Ezekiel stepped out, his oily black tentacles lashing and grasping like something from the ninth hell. His huge glossy eyes stared at them all, unblinking, and he bared his twin rows of nightmare teeth. Well, isn't this a lovely little gathering? He swaggered into the light of the headlamps, around the outside of the little circle, though he didn't stray anywhere close to Janus. I can hardly imagine how I missed the invitation. Typical Zeke, thinking the world revolves around you, Misty said acidly. Not the whole world, Ezekiel said, in what he must have thought was a reasonable tone of voice. But when it comes to my house and its holdings, I think I have a right to be involved. 
He turned and faced Janus from across the circle. Especially when someone's trying to steal my birthright. Janus made no sign of being worried, but he straightened up and centered his mass over the balls of his feet. I assure you, Lord Ezekiel, this meeting has nothing to do with any of House Kapler's rightful belongings. Oh, really? Then explain this. Ezekiel gestured, and a cloud of photographs drifted down in the middle of the circle. They looked like still frames from security cameras, and they showed Janus and a group of lightbringers entering the offices of Valos Tower. One shot showed Janus speaking with Malcolm Ardvalos himself. Where did you get these? Kate asked, stunned. From a sneaky little friend inside Malcolm's organization. So maybe you'd like to tell me, Mr. Starson, why you're meeting with the man who's trying to steal the rift out from under me. He whirled on Misty. And then maybe you can tell me why you're meeting with Starson, a man you claim to despise. And with Detective Katane here, who's been working for your father of all people. A man who's treated my father like his dog for years. Zeke, calm down, Julia urged. Calm down? Calm down? Don't you see what they're doing? I unlocked the secrets of the rift. I said we could go there, claim its power, and come back alive and better than human. But they didn't want mere mortals to have this power, so they're trying to steal it from us. The vampires, the lightbringers, the mages, they're all afraid. Afraid of what me represent. But I won't back down, I won't. I'll fight to keep what's mine. Janus glowered, then reached back and drew out a limicel, holding it up before him. The sword's elven sigils glowed blue, a quiet warning. Lord Ezekiel, I will say this once, he said, his voice cool and as calm as ice. If you attempt to harm anyone here, I will stop you, by whatever means necessary. Ezekiel grinned. Oh, you'd like that, wouldn't you? A nice, justifiable homicide. But I'm not going to make it that easy for you, Starson. I'm not some monster from the sewers that you can gut in a dark alley. I'm a Kepler, and nobody takes what's mine. He reached out his tentacles, wrapped them around Julia, and dragged her bodily to his side. Nobody. There was a swirl of light and shadow, and then Ezekiel was gone, taking Julia with him. That fucking imbecile, Misty shouted, slamming her heavy, clawed foot into a nearby skimmer. The blow left a five-centimeter dent in the fender and set off the vehicle's security alarm. Damn him and his paranoid delusions to the eighth hell! What a pain in the ass, Kate groaned. Now we have to find Julia and get her back before tomorrow night. And we can't even tail his skimmer. Speaking of which, David said, appearing once more out of the shadows, has anyone thought to question why he left it there? Other than cheap theatrics, Misty offered. The tips of David's ears twitched. Actually, cheap theatrics is exactly the reason I was thinking of. 
I hear a ticking sound coming from inside the vehicle. Oh, shit, Kate cursed. Get in, now, Janus snapped. They all scrambled into the back of Janus's skimmer. Janus dove over the headrests into the front seat and jammed on the control headset. Kate was the last inside. She pulled the door shut as hard as she could. The engine whirred to life. There was a sudden blast, and the skimmer shook like a child's toy. The sharp bang of a side-impact airbag. It felt like being punched in the temple. Stars flared. Then the concrete began to crumble and fall, and darkness swallowed them. And that's where we're going to leave you for a couple of weeks, folks. Where has Ezekiel taken Julia? Was Janus's skimmer strong enough to protect its occupants from the bomb blast? And what will the survivors do when they escape from the rubble? Find out when Things Unseen continues. Neil Gaiman said, Stories may well be lies, but they are good lies that say true things, and which can sometimes pay the rent. So let's see how good a liar I was this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,163 words this week, over the course of seven hours, for an average writing speed of 738 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 32 days without breaking my chain. The Lost in the Least is now up to chapter 23 and the manuscript is over 78,000 words. I'm at the point in the novel where bad things are starting to happen to some characters we care about, so the stakes are being raised for our heroes to figure out what the bad guys are up to and put a stop to it. It feels like I have a path forward again for the plot, and that's a very reassuring thing. This week I ran the numbers on my first year of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I started this journey on May 8, 2015, From that day through May 7th, 2016, I spent a combined total of 540 hours writing and podcasting. On the business side, I spent 87 hours working on things like book layouts, cover art, updating the website, and other stuff related to the operations of Liminal Corvid Press. And I wrote 237,826 words, which makes it far and away my most productive year ever as a writer. And the most exciting thing of all is that I still have plenty of room to grow. Here's to next year being even more productive and successful than this year. For those of you who are coming to Balticon 50 this coming week, I do finally have my schedule for the panels that I'm going to be on. That wouldn't be terribly interesting listening for people who aren't going, though, so check the show notes and I'll have it posted there. And now, the feedback. I just wanted to leave some quick feedback for not this week's episode, but last week's, because I realized I neglected to. And I wanted to commend you on the end of the scene with Morgan and Evan and with Ava having enough. That was brilliant. I was kind of hoping she would come out to play. 
I, I love the whole, okay, I'm tired of my brother breaking our rules for mixing business and pleasure. I actually, I've been trying to get some of my coworkers into your podcast. And so I was quoting to the one, I'm just like, I committed to get off on this, aren't you? You're a dog, you're a switch. <laughs> my coworker was cracking up. So I'm, I'm definitely um, trying to, to gather more minions, um, I mean fans. <laughs> but I thought that was very cool. I mean, you know, I'm a fangirl, so there's a little bit of stuff that is like that is just kind of makes me happy in my heart. And yes, it's relevant to the plot, which is wonderful. And that's, you know, the whole concept of the difference between, you know, sex for the purpose of sex and sex for the purpose of plot. And, um, yeah, I just, I really liked the interplay between Evan and Morgan and then having Ava come in and take the reins is very cool. Thanks, Sarah. I'm glad you liked it. We'll see more of Morgan and Evan slash Ava together in The Lost and the Least. I really like how their relationship is developing. It's almost like a polyamorous V, and the differences in how Morgan relates to each of them are a lot of fun to explore. Also, I did definitely understand what you were talking about with the fact that some people are very much alpha in their everyday life or type A, and then the fact that, you know, being able to trust someone enough to submit for them is like where they're at in terms of where they really want to be in terms of at least their bedroom life. Although I know some people who are like in a 24-7 DS dynamic where the sub actually, she is high powered in her everyday life, but whenever she is home with her dominant, she is submissive. So I just think the whole concept of BDSM is a big thing that's near and dear to my heart, especially because I do some education around it besides the fact that, you know, I'm involved, but I'm glad that I can tell that you have done your research by whatever means necessary. Thanks. That's great to hear. I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of wonderful, open, friendly people in my life who are kinky and who weren't embarrassed to share their experiences with me. For everyone who has had those sorts of conversations with me, thank you. You've made me a better writer. So. Anyway, um, but back to the podcast. So I haven't listened to the new episode yet. I'm really excited about it. And part of me feels kind of cheated out of the rest of the scene with Kira and Morgan. Although part of me is like, I love the way that that scene ended. But we'll see if there is more. And if there's not, hey, I know some authors tend to sometimes write side stories with filling in the blanks, hint, hint, hint. I'm not begging for anything. No, seriously, I'm not. Like, write the important stuff. I'm not going to go back and tell the rest of that scene, because it already fulfilled its purpose for the story. We know how Ava succeeded in getting the files away from Morgan, and we learned something new about Morgan, Ava, and Evan. As previously mentioned, though, you will definitely see more of Morgan and Ava in The Lost and the Least. So while you won't get more of this scene, you will get to see how their relationship is developed about six weeks later. Hey, Chris, it's Sarah Pesterosa again. I realized that getting all fangirly over um, Evan and Ava Swapity and Morgan, I forgot to even mention anything about the uh, Malcolm Ardvalos. Oh, my God. So, question. With the vamp, if you do, like, what should be permanent damage, like, if we were to take his eyeball out with a spoon, would it grow back? Because I know they're super regenerative, but I don't know if they regenerate entire, like, organs. I mean, I'm guessing they do. 
I don't know. I was just thinking of starting for another series where he had his head bashed in with a sledgehammer and like pretty much knocked clean off and then it grew back completely. Generally speaking, vampires can regenerate from any sort of physical damage, with a few important exceptions. Damage from direct sunlight, mithril, holy water, or blessed weapons can't be regenerated as quickly. A vampire who sustains these sorts of aggravated injuries will still have them, even after shapeshifting to another form and back again, and they heal from these injuries about as fast as humans would heal from severe burns. In addition, any injury that decapitates a vampire will kill it instantly. Finally, a vampire whose heart is pierced with anything wooden will become immobilized. Basically, its body reverts to acting like a normal corpse until the wood is removed. This is because the life energy bound up in the wood disrupts the vampire's link to the death mana that animates it. Technically, any living tissue that could pierce the heart would have the same effect, but wood is traditional, because you can sharpen it and harden it without losing its magical properties. It should also be noted that a vampire can usually avoid catastrophic damage by reverting to mist form, or fogging out, as they call it on the street. This is an instinctive reflex for them when they're taking heavy injuries, although some vampires are faster at it than others. If for some reason a vampire is trapped in its physical form, though, say if it gets hit with a binding spell that shuts down its magic, then you could see the kind of extreme damage that you're talking about. But anyway, no, as a character, I think that I, like, I love Malcolm as a character, like, but I, you know, hate him as an individual, if that makes sense. It's kind of like the, uh, the kind of character that you love to hate. So, yeah, cool stuff. Now I'm going to listen to a new episode. Okay, okay, bye-bye. Thanks, Sarah. And it totally makes my day when people tell me how much they love to hate Malcolm Ardvalos. Mark Stone even confessed to yelling at his car's speakers over the last episode, There'll be a certain macabre artistry to your face! Anytime I can provoke that kind of passion from my listeners, I know I'm doing my job well. Thanks for calling in. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook page is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And if you'd like to support the show and help me keep making it, you can sign up for a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. The links will be in the show notes. That's our show for this week. Come back next time for more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this show are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.